Welcome to the Fish Nerds. It's a celebration of fish fishing and eating fish that is always interesting, usually funny and mostly true. I'm Ben of Eurotackle and here are the nerds. I'm Clay Grove, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast. And I'm Jeff, the effing librarian. Jeff, the effing librarian. Uh, That's me. That's a good bet that you'll be one smarter at the end of this podcast. Jeff, <laughs> wait a minute. So, Jeff, tell me about yourself. Why are you on this show? What brings you to the Fish Nerds? Well, I've been a long-time listener of the Fish Nerds. I bought in really, really early, and any chance to be part of Fish Nerd Nation is, uh, you know, I'm totally psyched. It's great. I love it. And, uh, yeah, and also, I'm a librarian. I read a lot of books, and a lot of those books are about fish, and so I thought I'd share some of those books with people. So the next level Fish nerd. Yeah, I do combine the, the fishing with the nerd in, in a very big way, yes. In a big way. Now, uh, Dave, when Dave and I first started this show, we had a vision for the show. And that vision was to have a bunch of effing correspondents around the country who would help do right. segment, segment production for us. And the idea was to build a fan base, and then basically the show would belong to the fans, to the Fish Nerd Nation. And all these segment producers would produce our show and, and Dave and I would just kind of host it and put the show together. The show is getting to that point now. We now have a what's called the Secret Society of Fish Nerds where there's a, yes. about seven to nine of us who are really active on keeping this thing going and Jeff you've been part of that for, for about a month now. Yeah. And uh, it's a neat little group of people. It's all the people you hear on the show every week and we're looking for more correspondents. So if you have fishing stories you want to share, not just about fishing, that's the easy stuff. But the more nerd world of fish uh, you want to share, contact us at clay at fishnerds.com. Reach out. Let me know what you've got. Uh, you need two things. You need a, uh, a voice because <laughs> we do an yeah. audio show, so it has to be a relatively good voice. Uh, and you have to have some knowledge base or some connection to the fish in your world. And better if you're the expert so we can go right to you for that production. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, and I'm going to give a a big request. Hey, you Aquarists, oh, we need you people guys. that love to keep fish in fish tanks. I used to be one of you, uh, but it's way too expensive for my my taste these days. Please, I think we need you. So please, join the Fish Nerd Nation. We do need those guys. Now, I, I was this weekend, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at a big expo, and I bumped into some ex-Aquarists. They're now fishing guides and that sort of thing, but they used to be big-time Aquarists. And they knew uh, they knew people in the fishing world who I know, you know. So yeah. like I'm up talking in Maine, Rockland, Maine, to Rhett Talbot, who's a photographer, and Rhett is friends with the uh, national renowned um, expert uh, cephalopod expert Richard Ross, and every these all these people know each other. Do you know Richard Ross? No, I don't think I know Google him. him. Um, Google him. He is the yeah. the cephalopod guy. Um, yeah, and, and eventually we'll get him on the show. He's, he said he'd come on. Yeah, um, it, but we want these kind of nerds who know more about that, especially the, the the Aquarius world, because we actually took the name from the Aquarius world. Yeah, and yeah. I was yeah I was in deep. I mean, we were talking like I had six breeder tanks in my bedroom, just breeding fish to kind of support the habit of having all these fish tanks. And fish yeah. Curve. And you like to watch them. Yeah, yeah, them. yeah, that's right. It was like, yeah, spawn for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shake that tail. Make that that's red. Right. That's right. And reference the last podcast. Yeah, exactly. Sperm on everything. 
<laughs> right. Hey, speaking of sperm on everything, we have a sponsor. <laughs> that is a great segue. Isn't that the best yes. ever? That yeah. is the best segue. Yeah. So actually, we have a, a new sponsor uh, just came on board, and um, it's an affiliate sponsor, which means we don't actually get any money unless unless they sell stuff through us, right? So the sponsor is Mystery Tackle Box. And Mystery Tackle Box is a monthly subscription service where every month you get a box in the mail full of cool fishing gear and it's specified to your style of fishing. So whether you're a fly fisherman or you're pan fishing or cat fishing or whatever it happens to be, you get a box that matches your style every single month. And if you go to mysterytacklebox.com right now and subscribe, you can save $5 off your first month by typing in the coupon code FISHNERDS. Easy one, right? And yep. you can get it. Yep. Now, I haven't got a box yet. They, 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 they assured me they'd send me a box. But uh, once I get it, I will, uh, I'll do a little video opening of it. And uh, I love getting stuff in the mail, so I'm excited about this. Every week is going to be just like uh, Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever it is you happen to celebrate when you get yeah. stuff. <laughs> so. Well, and the cool thing about these kind of boxes, these subscription things, is you don't know what you're getting. And honestly, I think for fishing, you're going to get stuff that you're like, oh, I've never tried this technique before. You know, I've never used this kind of lure. Uh, chatterbait, what's that? You know, and and you're going to take it out and fish it. And you may end up catching more fish. You may have a new favorite lure that you never yep. considered before. And that yeah. experience of trying something new that you wouldn't on your own. Because, you know, I'll, every time I go into the fishing store, I drop 20 bucks. And oh, I, I wish I could only drop 20 yeah. bucks. <laughs> I, I, without even questioning it, I do it. And uh, I think uh, Mystery Tackle Box, it's about $15 a month for, the, for their, their lowest price package. That's nothing for a box of yeah. fishing gear. Uh, and it and, saves you the trip. Yeah. And, but you don't know what you're going to get. And again, it forces you to learn new things. And again, with fish nerd, with the coupon code FISHNERDS, all one word, you could save $5 in your first month. And shipping, of course, is free. You can cancel whenever you want at mysterytacklebox.com. See, I did a commercial. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. Hello, nerds. This is Rich Collins, fly fishing correspondent, and I am bringing you a fly fishing minute. And I have no intention of keeping this to a minute. I just thought that was a cute name. Um, and I do believe you should be out fishing, not listening to a bunch of nerds, uh, myself included. So shame on you. But let's get right into it. Let's get into fly fishing. Why we fly fish, why people would want to fly fish, or why people would be interested in fly fishing. So quite simply, why fly fish? That's going to be the question of the day. And hopefully I can inspire some people to either pick the sport back up or get out and think of fishing from a new perspective. That's my goal here. Um, it's a geekier sport, I think, than traditional maybe worm fishing for a number of reasons. Um, it's a little bit more mentally challenging might be a good word. Um, nothing wrong with spin fishing, nothing wrong with any type of bait fishing. I've done them all. I will continue to do them all. But there's something about fly fishing that I need to relate. And I have to figure out what that is. It's really hard to put a, a kind of finger on what makes this an interesting style of fishing. So um, let me talk first about the elements of fly fishing. It's complex. It is not simply throw on a piece of bait, dangle it, and wait for fish to come. It's a much more aggressive, um, kind of challenging way to go after fish. And it's a much more 
intuition-driven way to catch fish. You really kind of have to get to know your quarry with fly fishing. Um, one thing that's particularly interesting to me is you can spend hours in the same hole or the same pocket of water unsuccessful and once you figure out or dial into what the fish are feeding on it's non-stop action so you might not think fish are there um, and you never know if they're just turning on or off but with fly fishing you don't hit and run as much as you might with say a spinner you usually run a spinner through the water three or four times um, each pocket each riffle and you're done if the fish are going to strike they're probably going to hit sooner rather than later Whereas fly fishing, you can literally dance in front of a fish for quite some time um, before they might decide to take. But once you dial into what they're feeding on or what interests them, usually they behave in a similar fashion. Um, and that mostly is related to either minnow activity, small, small um, fish activity that they're feeding on, or primarily insect activity. So fly fishing is heavily invested in the idea of the aquatic insects, from nymphs to flies on the surface um, to a, a millions of other things that live in the water. But the fish, in particular trout, are tuned into the insect activity around them. So you hear about hatches and you hear about, um, you know, mayflies and uh, things of this nature. And it's all related to the combination of fish being turned on by insects and therefore feeding aggressively. So you really want that aggressive um, almost angry feeding that a trout in particular will do, bass will do it, pretty much any fish will do it. But that's what gets fly fishermen excited is that active, aggressive, um, and it's almost an angry thing. So think of it as a popper on the surface, whether you're after striped bass or a frog on the surface if you're after largemouth or smallmouth bass. That explosive moment when they take is very um, adrenaline surging, and that's what, to me, fly fishing is all about. I mostly fish on the surface. There's uh, many ways to fly fish, but a junkie um, seeks his, <laughs> his drug of choice, and mine is watching fish hammer a fly on top of the water. Sometimes they sip it, sometimes they stare at it, sometimes they sniff it, but when you put uh, all these pieces together and you have very creatively thought through what you're trying to present, then presented it well, not scared the fish, and they take it, it's a very, um, it's a very fulfilling experience. It really drives home what fishing's all about. So not to uh, over-snobify it, but when you throw, you know, metal, you're pretty much doing the same thing over and over. Every once in a while you get a hit, and then the fun is seeing the fish. But with fly fishing, the fun starts when you walk up to the water and you start thinking about the fish. So um, let's just start there. That's my fly fishing minute to get you uh, hopefully at least interested in fly fishing, and uh, next time we'll go into a little more detail. So this is Rich Collins. Take care, nerds. Jeff, I, I am, I'm happy to have you here because you gave me an assignment this week. Yes, I did. I signed the book, uh, God, a biography of the fish that changed the world by Mark Kolansky, which, uh, you know, when, when we were first kind of bandying this idea around about a book club, you know, I was like, ah, you know, fish fishing, da, da, da. what am I going to I gotta hit. I gotta hit a homer on the first one, mm -hmm. and this book is really just 
even if you don't even care about fish and fishing, it's just a great read. It's probably one of the best nonfiction books I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just in the scope of you think that a fish isn't that important, and then you read this book and you go, uh, he is right. This fish did change the world. You know, it's interesting. So we'll talk about the book in just a second. Um, I hadn't read the book. I had read Salt before. Yes, I've read that too. Which is also by Mark Kalansky. But I hadn't read this. I did. I did manage to read the entire book, Jeff, this week. That's. I'm very proud of you. I know. I. You know. I actually haven't sat down and read a whole book in over a year. So. <laughs> well. I had to really force myself. Um, but I've done my job as a librarian. You I've win. Got you to read a book. And I took it out from the local library here in Conway, yes. New Hampshire. So. Yes. I actually posted on Facebook on our Fish Nerds page that I was going to do this. Uh, they were doing the story this week, and the Conway Public Library. My my neighbor is the director of the library. He texted me and said the book's on hold for me to come pick it up. So he pulled off the shelf just for me. That's great. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I reached out to um, Mark's uh, agent. He's a big deal. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, most authors you can catch, you can get online and talk to. Um, this guy, he was out, I think he was doing a speaking gig in Singapore or someplace uh, out, of, out of the country right now. Uh, but he's written tons of books. And I reached out to his, to his uh, agent, tried to get him on the show. Um, and we never, never got him, never closed the deal. We're, st- we're not giving up. We still make oh, no. him. But this is not his newest book. This came out like 1990s, I think 94, something like that. Yeah. Um, and he's got a lot of books since then. So for, in his brain, he's probably moved on way past this. Um, but let's talk about the book. I don't, I've never done a book club. My wife goes to a book club every week because she's a big reader. What do we do? It's an effing book club. Well, you know, Honestly, I think half of those book clubs are an excuse to sit around and drink wine yeah, or beer I'm or whatever your beer right now. What are you drinking? Whatever what yeah, so am I. Uh, give a shout out to Mother's Brewing Company of Springfield, Missouri. So there we go. Great adventure or that great beer adventure <laughs> friends, right? Yeah, um, I'm drinking uh, Tuckerman's Pale Ale, another local beer here in Conway. Yeah, and this is a uh, it's called Winter Grind. It's a coffee stout and it mm. is delicious. That sounds really effing good. Yeah. Yeah, Evan. All right, let's have a book club. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I I read this book a long time ago. I think when it very first came out, and and it was one of those books. Takes a really good nonfiction book to like really kind of suck you in and, and get you really interested in what's going on. And this one was one that I just immediately was like, hey, this guy's on to something, and. Uh, yeah, and it's, so it, it's it's got everything. It's got history. It's got ecology. It's got recipes. It's got it's got everything. Um, you know the the cod. Prior to reading this, I knew a that they'd been overfished, and b that that's what was in all those fish sticks I ate in the nineteen seventies. And you think. the whole story. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's what was in it. Um, but yeah. Uh, but the whole story of the of the cod is really uh, amazing. Um, you know, when I read this book, I you know, one of the things that I got out of this book was that the Basques had probably discovered North America uh, long before Columbus, but they didn't want to tell anybody because that's where they were catching all the cod well, that they were is, selling. This is the classic fisherman's tale, right? Yes. The classic yes. fisherman. Hey, look at all these great fish. Oh, those are nice. Where'd you catch them? In the ocean. Yeah, and over so, there. So the bass were protecting their fishing ground, so they didn't tell yeah. the world that they discovered a whole new continent. 
Yeah, they and they had fished it. <laughs> yeah, and they had to be going ashore to dry the fish. Right. So they had literally been, you know, on North American soil, but they just didn't tell anybody because they didn't want anybody to know where their secret honey hole was. And uh, yeah, and the Vikings—that's how they basically fueled their way across the Atlantic was through dried cod. It's it's really amazing. I, I what I, I'll tell you what I loved about this book because I'm a big eater. Like I love food. Yeah, and I felt like it used recipes as a vehicle to bring us through history. So yes, every, it did. Every chapter opened with a cod recipe. Yes, that was yes. pertinent to the date that chapter or time period that chapter took place. Um, but I was shocked by the amount of salt pork uh, <laughs> used in cod yes. fishing. Uh, it seemed like every recipe started with salt pork. Yeah, the- yeah, all those classic chowders is like take a bunch of salt pork. And then a fish that's really super salty. And yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, honestly, I went back and re-listened to it as an audio book here just to get caught back up on it again. And every time they started talking about the uh, Portuguese and the cod, all I could think of was Hugo. Yes. Oh, I bet Hugo's got a lot to think, a lot to say about cod. Yeah, I was um, hoping because... he would call in on this. But you know, yes, we, later in the show, we'll talk about cooking some parts of the cod that we don't normally think about eating. But in this book, it addresses eating all those things. Um, one of the fun facts on it, I think it was in Iceland, they were asking the people, you know, he was talking about Icelandic people don't eat cod. No, because yeah, because, because they want to sell it. They because want to sell it because it's money. Yeah, they don't eat money, but yep. they would eat parts of the cod that maybe it wasn't marketable, and, right? Which I think is just really cool. And I love this concept of not wasting the fish. And cod's one of those fish that every part seems to be useful. Yes, yeah, and like for instance, in the beer that we drink, the Isinglass. I'm not exactly sure the pronunciation of that word. Mm-hmm. It's a clear. It's a clarifying agent that originally was made from the swim bladders of cod. It's still made from the swim bladders of fish, but it used to be the cod was the number one source of that. Right, not uh, in Guinness so it, anymore. Guinness gave that up a couple of years ago. Uh, it's, so now it's vegan. Yeah, because it's now vegan drink. That's right. Vegan beer. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and the history of the whole cod trade, as it relates to America, is pretty fascinating too. How. You know, that was a big part of the colonial economy, so much so that the, you know, I think the British were not happy that, you know, we were over here making bank, catching cod, and some of the trade actions they took kind of to counteract that is what, in part, led to the revolution. Well, and it was because of cod and rum, by the way. Rum was very closely connected with the cod. Right, right, right. Uh, It was cod and rum were the reasons that the colonials were able to to win the Revolutionary War. Yeah. You know, we were outmatched and definitely outdressed. Fashionably, we lost. But um, we were well-fed, and we were rowdy and drunk, and that's how the Americans won. That's <laughs> right. We're a bunch of we're a bunch of drunk fishermen. Uh, kind of proud. A bunch of drunk fishermen is what. Bring it on! War. Yeah. Bring so. it on! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then it gets into the into the much uh, less savory aspect of the history of cod, and it's in the uh, Atlantic slave trade, where the mm-hmm. where the salt cod was used as cheap food for slaves and it became that whole cycle of we would trade cod for sugar to make rum and to export the rum to 
Africa to then get more slaves to then. And it, it was this, you know, this triangular trade that COD played an integral role in so much so now that all these former, you know, slave countries, you know, especially throughout like the Caribbean, they all have a taste for COD in places where they would never have encountered a COD. So in the tropical Caribbean, people have a craving for a fish that's only found in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy, uh, crazy connection. I kind of, I, I get, every time I hear about the slave trade, I get a little depressed. <laughs> I, yeah, that part deeply of the book, depressing. I, I might have ignored a lot of that part of the book. I try to ignore negative parts of our history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's I'm, I'm ignoring a lot of modern things happening right now. Yes, for that yeah. Same, the same reason. Probably, it's probably good for your mental health. Yeah, yeah. Just drown it with beer and, and rum. That's why they drank so much rum. That's they, right. They weren't happy about the slave trade. They just it was part of what people did at that time. Yeah, and yeah, the uh, the idea of the Puritans up there being all sober-minded people up there in New England. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, they were cranking out the rum by the barrel full constantly, so not maybe quite so uptight as you thought they were. No, sobriety's never been part of American history, although I support anyone's <laughs> sobriety who chooses that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know what's funny about this is, like, I, I'm good with people who don't drink. Like, if you were if you drank a lot in your youth and you, but you gave it up or you were an alcoholic and you can't drink anymore, but I, I, have, I have a trust issue with people who have never drunk. Like, yeah, you're just like, like uh, it's fucking kill you. You've never done it, you know. But and some of my, my my like one of my biggest heroes in my life has never had alcohol, and uh, uh, Pendulet. But I I, just, I don't trust something about that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. it's almost like a stunt. I'm like, I'm gonna live this whole life without doing this thing that everybody does. Yeah, it's weird. But anyway, I, I support anyone sobriety. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, but totally fun book uh, to get through. Um, I, I kind of wanted to like start pulling it apart and cooking some of the recipes out of it. Yeah. Um, but reading the recipes, it's the recipes don't use measurements you rec- don't you would recognize. No, they're they're the historical recipes, and uh, yeah, like you said, lots of salt pork yeah, well, involved. They all, in they all require uh, no measurements. So right. It like like a lot of the recipes start with. Find the biggest pot you have. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> then put thirty pounds of you know, cod right. head in it. <laughs> That's exactly okay, right. Salt, put in cod head, salt pork, and let it boil until it's hot. Yeah, then, yeah. But there's no very vague. Yeah, very very vague. And um, I, I I even wonder if we could go travel back in time and taste this food, would we even like it? Yeah, I wonder. In fact, I was at the grocery store the other night, and I saw in a box in the frozen food section actual salt cod. You didn't buy and it? Yes, and it was in an actual wooden box, and it, I think it was only like a pound, and it was insanely expensive. Yes, the cheapest uh, stuff now. Like all, If you think about all the modern delicacies, were all classic poor people's foods. Yes, yeah. No. This stuff was the food of just the common people because it was – it really was the first food that could be easily transported because they could dry it and salt it and transport it easily without it spoiling. And so it was a major protein source mm-hmm. for, you know, in, in Europe in the Middle Ages, most people rarely ever got meat. But if they did, it was probably salt cod. Yeah, or some kind of dried beef. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, some kind of really second-rate jerky. Yeah, but the salt cod was nice because they could re-moisten that. You can foil that for a while. Yeah. I'll tell you, my favorite recipe, I, I think it was a recipe or, I feel, or a chapter in the book, but they were talking about um, flush toilets in, in cod. Yes, and yes. I, I was in yes. France, maybe. Uh, I think it was France. But the, the 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 person was like, you know, you have to flush the clean water over the cod every so often. So they started, they put cod in the toilet and would just flush the toilet every it, so often to prepare the cod. Yes, and it was on it was on a ship, and the guy had the idea to rehydrate the the cod by putting it in the the old fashioned toilet where you've got the reservoir way up high. Yes, you know, and he put the cod in the toilet reserve tank and rehydrate it yeah yeah okay um, so that's hugo's new assignment hugo yeah. started a photo uh online that he got some what they call it? what it's a bacala bacala bacalao bacalao he got some bacalao so hugo put that in the back of your toilet for a couple yeah. of days yeah well i will say i have had courtesy of a swedish friend that i had when i lived on the west coast uh, I have, I have had lutefisk and I will tell you, I am not a fan of lutefisk. That is some <laughs> nasty, nasty stuff. I mean, you took a perfectly good fish and turned it into snot <laughs> basically. And, and, and like, yeah, lie or something terrible. Like, yeah, yes, yes. And you treat it with lye and it basically turns into fish jello uh, and yeah. it's, uh, the, the texture is just uh, it's 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 one of those things where I don't think anyone eats lutefisk as like, yeah, let's eat lutefisk. It's more like uh, we're Scandinavian and this is a cultural tradition. And by God, we're going to eat some lutefisk. Uh, you know, you know it's, to... it's your classic grandma liver and onions, right? It's, exactly. You eat it because you always have as a culture, not because it's good. Right. Just because right. you always have, yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah, I, it's just he cons. I, I, by the way, if anyone served it to me, I would totally eat it because I want to taste it. Uh, but the uh, concept yeah. is just foul. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you that the taste is not the issue. The it's the texture. Yeah. Yes, it's the texture, and it's, it's just one of those things where you're just like, this just does not look like something I should eat. No. <laughs> uh, nor does the mouthfeel is particularly pleasant either. You know, I mean, it's it's just a gloppy sloppy mess of slimy stuff and yeah yeah i'll pass you know and it's funny that that um i think it's in i can't remember which language it is but they they never say they don't have a word for cod as fresh no what they will say is what essentially would translate to fresh dried cod mm -hmm. oh, I remember you know that, yeah I can't remember um, the, the details that, of that. There's so much yeah. in the book here. I can't. I get confused on the details. But I yeah. Reading about that. Yeah. That the that the salt cod was is so ubiquitous or was so ubiquitous that they didn't even have a word for fresh cod. It was oh, this is fresh salt cod. Mm -hmm. Now the book brings us from the beginning of the cod trade in the United States up through the 1990s. Yeah, and on its way, it gets into talking about what happens. First of all, you know, you you find out how regulations have changed over the years and how it impacted the fish and how fishermen and scientists didn't always agree on how things were going, which is still the case. Yes, you know, there's still this mismatch, a conversation not happening between the two groups, but it, it kind of drills down the importance of 
scientists listening to fishermen about what's really happening in the oceans and fishermen listening to the scientists about how to work with the problem. It's kind of this really funny uh, dichotomy that the only way to fix things is to really communicate with each other in a positive way. Yeah, and it was the small-scale inshore fishermen that were the ones that were sounding the alarm bell. They're mm-hmm. like, uh, we're not seeing the fish that we used to. Well, the big trawlers are still out there just, you know, raking them in, and the, you know, the governments are kind of like, hey, they're still yank, they're just dragging them in left and right out there. There must be a lot of them. And the inshore fishermen, the, you know, the small, you know, mom and pop, I guess, equivalent, were like, uh, there's a problem. And they just kept getting blown off. And it really is it really is the classic story of of overfishing. I mean, mm-hmm. at one time, well, it, not the classic, the, I, it, is the, it is the story. It is yeah. the yeah, <laughs> it is the story of overfishing, because at one time, the the biomass of of the North Atlantic cod population, <clears throat> especially on the eastern North American seaboard of New England and the maritime provinces of Canada was just, it was insane. It's one of those things like the passenger pigeons or, mm-hmm. you know, the great buffalo herds, which everybody's like, oh, those will, oh, there's so many of those. We could never right. get rid of all those. And, and that and, was a theory. People were saying, oh, the cod just must be migrating. So yeah, yeah. This year. Well, uh, we yeah. Still hear that kind of conversation happening. Yeah. And there was, there was a, there was a mentality that, um, you know, that you couldn't overfish. It was, it was just impossible that, you know, that nature's bounty was, was essentially endless. Um, well, it was for a couple of generations. I mean, there was and, a time where, you yes. know, where people would fish and it would be, it was never ending. And it, yes. Until yeah. the modern commercial factory ship showed up, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then that really, I think was the downfall of, of the cod population, well, at least in when the you're, when you're reading in the book about how the big uh, steam powered ships were competing with the sail powered boats, right? Uh, and just how quickly it changed the whole dynamic of fishing, and how those big giant steam powered ships could just fish circles around all these little yeah. sailboats and just crush the whole industry right there. Yeah, and you essentially end up into a fishing arms race of mm-hmm. who can. Who can you know make the biggest net and who's got the biggest boat and who can pull in the most fish? Right. So conservation not on the list. The list is I need more than that guy. Right. In order to compete, yep. you know, and stay stay alive in the industry, you had to keep escalating, and uh, you know the governments of both Canada and the United States were slow to understand, and like like the book says, the fishermen, the inshore, the small scale fishermen. They had a really good finger on the on the pulse of the fishery, and they started seeing the problems before anybody else. They they were the you know they were the local knowledge. Were like things are not right. This is not we're not seeing the same size of fish. We're not seeing the same numbers of fish that are coming in shore to spawn, and they were right and they were clamoring for protection for this and, and they got ignored and one has to think money <laughs> played a, it's, it's a large always, role in that. It's always money. It comes down to money, whether, whether it's a fishing issue or environmental issue. Like if you look at, I, I was reading this, I couldn't help but compare the cod industry with the modern coal industry. Yeah. And you think about, okay, the biggest, so if you, if you get near the end of the book, spoiler alert, the uh, cod population crashes and, Cod yeah, get shut down. Um, 
But if you look at compare that to the coal industry, the only reason we we're still using coal is is because a bunch of people make money for their families in that horrible industry. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Not because coal it. is good. Not because it's safe. Not because it's clean. Not even because it's good jobs. They're terrible jobs. Cod right. fishing, by the way, also a terrible job. But if you think yeah. about how that job impact culturally a region, coal is the same way. That cultural impact is huge. You know, if you look oh, at like, if you you're working on a on a fishing boat as a fisherman, your wife probably works on shore at a shop selling fish or doing something else in the fishing industry. It's all this connected in um, cultural thing, and eventually that bandaid's going to fall off. And yeah, it's, has to happen. You know, the economy is a lot like an ecosystem where if you yank out something, it's going to have a ripple effect mm -hmm. and. You know, the entire economy of, you know, lots of New England and the maritime provinces of Canada was really based on this cod fishing industry. And when that collapsed, it took the economic driver out of the whole system. And the ripple effect was massive. It, you know, it's not because you had to have people supplying these people. You had, I mean, the the total economic base for all these communities along the coast was just it was like a carpet yanked out from underneath them and they're you still know suffering. they're still suffering yes now. they yeah they are and, there's and, never, I, and they'll never recover in in unless something drastic changes uh, because yeah. right now the way it's working is uh, every so often we do a moratorium on cod fishing and then the cod make a little bit of recovery and we open it back up again. And it's yeah. like two steps forward, three steps back. It's not gonna. I, I I'm not an expert on this, but I, I I can't imagine it recovering in our lifetime at the pace we're going. Yeah, well, we need to get our uh, our friend from the Speak Up for Blue. I'm sure he has uh, some pretty good things to say about this. Uh, oh, I should there's a again. that's Andrew Lewin from the Speak Up for yes, Blue podcast. Great, yes, great show. If you want yeah, really yeah, it's a great show. show. I I have been listening to that ever since it was uh, recommended on the podcast, but. Yeah, and in fact, we may have fundamentally altered the ecosystem in, in a way that the cod may never get back to the level they were. Well, because we've created imbalance. So even if they're spawning yes, like maniacs, you might have other right. fish that have kind of taken over that, that niche. Yes, and might eat they've the moved babies. in. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, the, the, yeah, other fish have seen the vacuum mm -hmm. created by taking out this top predator, and they've moved in, and you just we just may never recover the 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 level of fish, <clears throat> they won't go extinct, <clears throat> excuse me, but they'll certainly go commercially extinct. Yeah, which maybe is a terrible thing for, for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, terrible you know, for your and you family can, if you make your business, if that's your business, that's terrible. But Yeah, um, you know, it, one can look across the Atlantic to the northeast population of the of the cod, which although it, it was overfished in some areas, it's, it's still relatively healthy. Mm -hmm. Um you know Scandinavia and Iceland and stuff, and they're very protective of their of their fishery. In fact, Iceland had several uh, what basically boiled down to cod wars. I don't think there were many shots exchanged. It was one shot? Uh, yes, one shot. Yeah, yeah one shot according, was exchanged. According to the book, one shot. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I but the detail of it. I remember I was going to mention it. Um, yeah. Shoot, oh well. But yeah, read the book. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. Like I said, it. You would never think a book about a about a fish and fishing would be this interesting and draw in so many different elements 
And, you know, it, it really does show, you know, I think some people, you know, like, ah, why are these people so interested in fish here at this fish nerds? I'm like, well, they're important. And I think this book really shows just how important fish are. You know, it's the last wild food. You know, we don't typically eat, you know, oh, here's this deer that someone shot out in the woods and it's at the grocery store. But fish is that last food that we harvest from the wild. And in order to do that right, you know, we have to do it smart. And I think really the message of this book is, you know, kind of a, a, a classic tale of how things can go wrong how important this was, how it influenced culture in all kinds of ways, and yet we messed it up. And and now this thing that was once just commons everywhere now is a rare, treasured, highly coveted item. You know, it used to be that, that the salt fish was, you know, ubiquitous food for poor people. And now, like I said, you go to the grocery store and it's insanely expensive. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a, a good place to start thinking about sustainability of, of all the fisheries that we that we have. Absolutely. Now, we could spend all night just reviewing the whole book, but I think people get a good idea from that. Um, so that's Cod by Mark Kurlansky. That was our first FN uh, book club. Uh, Jeff, thanks for helping put that together. That's really cool. Yeah, and I've got a whole list of uh, future books. Right. Uh, Can we announce the next book now? Do you know what we're doing next? I'm going to let you just decide. You, you get to be the arbiter of our next book. Okay, I will decide, and it will be The Founding Fish by John McPhee, which is about the American shad. Oh, I love it. Sabadissima. Yeah. It means most delicious fish. The yes, founding and, fish uh, by who? Uh, John McPhee, who's a pretty noted environmental writer by the way you were uh, supposed to be impressed with my knowledge of the... <laughs> yes <laughs> yes clay now. you know the Give you know the credit. scientific name <laughs> of the of the american shad yeah which is a fish that i really have never encountered ah. uh living here in the well i guess what i'd call the effing middle here in in, <laughs> in kansas city area so um never had a chance to fish for him find him fascinating um I would really love to get somewhere where I could do some shad fishing because it sounds like incredible fun. But yeah, it's a, again, it's a really well, it's it tells a great story of the how the importance of shad in American history because again, it was a kind of a staple fish, and it also is just a very well written book. He is a shad fisherman. He enjoys fishing for shad, and if you've ever read any of his other works. He really has a way of, of talking about nature that's that's almost like lyrical. So on one level, it's a book about a fish and fishing, but it's a very well written book about fish and fishing. Which, and so you want both, you know, you want both those yeah. things. So that's the, yeah. Uh, and as, so the next FN book club will be in mid March. We'll we'll put an event page up on our Facebook. Yeah. Uh, the Founding Fish by John McPhee. Uh, yeah. You probably get it at your local library, um, and and we'll be talking about it. You can call into the Fish Nerds hotline. We'd love to get listeners and readers' input on these FM book clubs. So if you read the books and you want to call in and give your opinion, 607-378-FISH, leave a voicemail on the Fish Nerds hotline and be part of the conversation or email us or do something to communicate with us because the more voices on these conversations, the better they are. Uh, and and I am 
and I am 100% open to suggestions of, of books. If you have a book about fish, fishing or eating fish that you really enjoyed, shoot me an email or uh, I guess Clay an email or call the Fish Nerds hotline. We'll see if we can get it in there. Yeah, or just find us on social media. We're easy. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I'll venture that the Fish Nerds podcast is the most interactive of all podcasts. You can, we, we are always here talking to everybody who wants to talk to us. So we want your yeah. opinions. Okay? So, hey, nice job on the effing book club. That's totally good. Well, thanks, Clay. Yeah, I love it. It's going to be a regular monthly segment from uh, as long as you can stay, stay with us. Oh, I'm in, I'm in for the long haul. Like Excellent. I said, I've been, I've been around – since not since the beginning, but pretty close to it, and I'm really excited to be a part of it. Well, speaking of being part of things, uh, despite the fact that we do have a a sponsor now, um, our podcast actually has been supported in, entirely by our listeners uh, through Patreon.com, uh, and we have some new patrons. Uh, Patreon, by the way, is a, a crowdfunding website where you can voluntarily donate. Uh, you know, a monthly amount towards a show. So, like, for example, our, our, our podcast, we're asking listeners to donate $1 per episode. If you think one hour of entertainment is worth a dollar, we're asking you to put a dollar in the hat, and then every month you'll get billed 4 bucks out of your PayPal account, and I get paid the money, and that goes to buying better equipment and travel and getting good guests on the show and uh, upgrading our, our equipment for our uh, FN <laughs> correspondence. I owe Captain Sean a better microphone, for example. Um, so little things like that. And we have new patrons uh, this month. Rich Collins, who is one of our new correspondents, has given some money to the show. Uh, Ed Hind and Backwoods Graphics, a company, is uh, throwing some money in the hat. Backwoods Graphics actually makes our decals for us. Yes. Local which, New Hampshire company. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Fishner's decal proudly displayed on my car now. Excellent. So. Yeah, so I'm driving around Excellent. with the uh, backwards graphics and uh, fish nerds representing. So represent. That's nice. Anyway, That's right. So Patreon.com/slash/fishnerds and help us crowdfund this show. Good job. All right. How about a little fish in the news? I love fish <laughs> in the news, and I, I am, I am absolutely yeah. That is like my. It's my favorite segment. Fish well, in the News really is my favorite segment of, of the fish nerds. Well, virtually every uh, every Fish in the News late last few weeks has been stuff you've shared with us. So. <laughs> yeah, I love Fish in the News so much that I go research Fish in the News because I'm a librarian and I'm like, hey, Fish in the News. Right. Hey, but our first story actually came from my brother, uh, sent it in, and this is from smithsonian magazine and the title is fish don't do so well in space the international space station resident fish shed light on life in microgravity just quick guess what kind of i haven't read the article yet what kind of fish do you would you guess they put in space if this was related to the other one was it the mummachog yeah mummachog would be my guess as well usually it's like a fish of choice because they're so hardy uh, but I haven't read this article yet. So this is by, who wrote this? This is January 16th. This is relatively recent. This is Danny Lewis. Life in space is hard on the human body, and the lack of gravity pull can quickly take its toll. Bone density declines, muscles deteriorate, and more. But compared to fish, humans have it pretty easy. For several years, scientists 
working with the Japanese space station, which is called JAXA, which sounds like more fun than it is, uh, studying <laughs> the, the effects of life aboard the International Space Station for small school of Medica fish. I don't, I don't know this fish. M-E-D-A-K-A fish, also known as Japanese rice fish. They are small freshwater fish native to Japan, and they are invaluable for space research. Not only are they easy to breed, but they are transparent, giving researchers a clear view of their bones and guts as they adjust, right, as they adjust their life in space. It's really cool. So that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I can actually yeah, it's like a... Food. Yeah, this is a natural x-ray. Really cool. So, um, it turns out the effects of microgravity on Medica aren't much different than our own. The effects just set in much faster. For humans, it takes at least 10 days for the symptoms to start showing up. But according to a new study published by the Journal of Scientific Reports, the fish started losing bone density almost immediately upon arriving in orbit. Since humans and Medica grow their skeletons in similar ways, that gives scientists a good starting point to figure out how the process actually occurs. Yeah, I find this really interesting because fish live in an environment, it seems like, where gravity's not that big a deal. They're kind of neutrally buoyant and just floating around, and I wonder why they they deteriorate so quickly. I, that, I that's, wonder, a, that's a fascinating finding. It is fascinating, but I, I also wonder, like, like I don't know how fish determines where up and down is, right? And I wonder, I, I wonder if being in space is harder for a fish even to like get themselves in a position where they are up and down. Like I, I kind of imagine a fish going in all different directions in the tank if you're in space with nothing. I, I don't know. I think they, yeah, they tend to orient themselves according to light sources. I've noticed as an Aquarius, if you put a light on the side of the tank, they would position themselves so that their backs were towards the light source. So, they, so if you took a, like a, let's say you have a, 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 a cube tank. Right. So, so, and if you took on the right side of the cube, put a light there, you think they would all be facing upwards? I think that a lot of fish do orient based on the direction of the light, yes. Really? I smell new science and, and experiment. I, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I will say that I've seen this actually happen in, a, in an aquarium where you've got the main light off, but there's a light source off to the side that they will start to kind of orient towards back towards that light source. Lot to learn here. In order to get a closer look at how the fish's bodies reacted to life in space, the scientists genetically modified them to GMO space fish. Uh, oh, yeah? Two different types of cells would glow under different wavelengths of light. The first, osteoclasts, break down bone tissue as part of the process of repairing and maintaining any damage. The second, osteoblasts, create the matrices that bone forms around. Burn reports, as soon as the fish made it to the ISS, they went into special tank design for microgravity and were observed from a remote lab at the Tsukuba Space Station Center using two different fluorescent lights as their bodies adjusted to their new environment. Because the fish reacted so quickly to their new living situation, the researchers were able to observe the effects of microgravity on their bodies almost in real time. Almost immediately, numbers of both types of cells increased noticeably when compared to the earthbound control group with certain genes going into action in ways not seen in normal gravity. While these findings are limited to this, this batch of lab-grown fish, it could eventually shed new light on the process that govern how human bodies adapt 
to space as well as typical human diseases like osteoporosis. So I, that's that's really interesting. I love that they color the fish, uh, the fish's cells in order to. Yeah, not only not only is it fish in space, it's fluorescent fish in space. So yeah, fish in <laughs> space. Now, looking at the photos of this tank, it looks like it's highly pressurized. I wonder if that has to do with keeping the fish oriented uh, in certain directions. Yeah, and also, I guess you would have a problem with water air boundary as well. Right, I bet uh, you it's filled right up. There's probably no... Yeah, it's probably 100% full, yeah. Yeah, at least... Yeah. <laughs> I imagine a fish might just float out of the water at some point and just die. Right, or there could be little air bubbles inside, you know, little air pockets floating around inside the tank that the fish would accidentally stumble into, and that would probably not be good. It would have been a great article if they didn't have that tank, and we just brought a tank on aquarium up, and it would be like, <laughs> messiest fish tank ever at the International yeah. Space Station. <laughs> yeah. Worst scientific experiment ever. Someone's fired. Yes. <laughs> All right, next story. And this is from Trout Unlimited. Rich Collins submitted this story to us, which is our fly fishing correspondent. Eventually, he's going to teach me how to fly fish. I like Tenkara a lot. I'm not sure I'm ever going to love fly fishing. Well, yeah, and I, I am I am someone who was very much a traditional fly fisherman and found Tenkara and immediately went, this is great, I love it, and I rarely use the pile of fly rods that I have now, and uh, yeah, Tenkara is great. Yeah, it's very cool. All right, so brookies do better without brown trout. That's a study here. Um, it says, let's see, a new U.S. geological survey study performed at an experimental stream lab laboratory in Kensville, West Virginia, shows non-native brown trout can place a burden on native brook trout under the increased water temperatures climate change can cause. It's one of the first experimental studies linking climate change and invasive species biology. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised it's the first one. Uh, the USGS yeah. found that non-native browns limited the ability of brook trout to utilize warmer stream temperatures. In contrast, removal of non-native brown trout expanded the brook trout's reach into warmer waters. Brook trout are threatened by climate change because of their requirement for cold stream temperatures. We know streams are warming due to climate change, and non-native species are becoming increasingly abundant in many places, uh, commented Nathaniel Hitt of the USGS. Our research indicates that reducing brown trout numbers can benefit native brook trout where the space species co-occur. Moreover, brown trout management could help brook trout be more resilient to intimate effects of climate change. Um, it's not a long article. It's not that surprising. <laughs> yeah, and I I know that brown trout are more tolerant of, of warmer water temperatures than most trout species, mm -hmm. um, and they're bigger on average than brookies. And I got to imagine that a lot of those brookies that try to come down into the warmer reach become uh, brown trout dinner. Yeah. And, and brown trout aren't even natives <laughs> in North America. I mean, they're brought in from, from yeah, yeah, Germany, yeah. right? Yeah. So, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Europe and Asia. Yeah. I know, I know in New England, especially they were brought in from specifically from Germany. It's called German Browns. Rainbows from California. Uh, and then brookies were native. And I think like nine states claim brook trout as their state fish. So brook trout's always that kind of indicator species because so many states care about this fish at that level that that's the information they want. No one ever does these studies using fall fish or minnows. 
<laughs> right, always right. Always choosing the, the big cuddly pretty fish for these. And brookies are probably, a spawning brookie is probably one of the most beautiful fish I've ever seen. They are stunning. They are stunning. Now, have you caught um, native brookies like in different parts of the country? I have only caught brook trout where they are non-native oh. in the West, where there's something of a of a, an invasive species there where yeah. they've been introduced in. Yeah, into watersheds where they compete with uh, cutthroat trout. And, you know, most of them are quite small out there. And, uh, you know, people are, I'm, I frequently get in uh, arguments in fly fishing circles about catch and release. And there's a, a mentality of every trout needs to be put back in the water. And I'm firmly for eating brookies in, in the mountain west. Uh, they are an invasive species and they're also delicious. They are delicious. It's interesting because this article we just read now didn't say it because it was trying to limit it. It kind of said maybe you ought to eat the brown trout. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Take yeah. a couple of them. Now, Trout Unlimited is, is people who are members of Trout Unlimited are the traditional fly fishermen who would not eat a fish. Um, I think overall. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but uh, but they're pretty traditional fishermen there, or fly fishermen. Yeah, yeah. And I think the whole mentality of of uh, catch and release is a great idea but like anything you can become too beholden to an idea and it may actually be counterproductive in some circumstances yeah for sure and plus eating fish is fun uh, yeah just, and they taste good and they taste good right yeah <laughs> right alright let's move on here this is from physics.org and I think you submitted the story to us and yeah. it was 90% of fish used for fish meal are prime fish, uh, which I find interesting. And uh, what is fish meal? Do you know? Yeah, they grind up fish and basically make a food additive uh, or like a food for other fish. Uh, they add it into livestock feed. Um, I think a lot of it right now it goes into aquaculture for things like Atlantic salmon, farmed Atlantic salmon, things like that. And the, I think the whole gist of this equation is, is why don't we just eat the fish that we're making into fish meal because it's more efficient that right. way. Well, that's the argument for becoming a vegetarian also. <laughs> you know, why, yeah. Why don't we yeah. just eat the vegetables that we're feeding the cows instead of growing the cows up? Um, but every year for the past 60 years, an average of 20 million tons of fish caught in global oceans have not been used to nourish people. A new study emerging from the CSEA Around Us project at the University of British Columbia's Institute of Oceans and Fisheries reveals that from 1950 to 2010, 27% correctly, of commercial marine landings were diverted to uses other than direct human consumption. This trend has not changed in the recent years and it poses serious questions regarding food security as most of the diverted fish are classified as food grade or prime food grade. Out of the grand total, 18 million tons, maybe because the British has written some funny words, uh, of fish have been used specifically in the production of fish meal and fish oil, which are commonly fed to aquaculture and livestock species. According to Tim Cashion, a researcher from Sea Around Us and lead author of the study, most fish destined for fish meal produce are are food grade fish published in fish and fisheries. These are prime fish resources are artificially feed farm fish, pigs, chicken, and cause of concern as fish are an important source of nutrients and animal proteins for two point nine billion people around the world. 
I'm not yeah. it because it repeats itself like four times from this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think they're basically arguing to eat lower on the food chain. Um, you know, most of these things are smaller fish, you know, sardines, anchovies, things like that, uh, herring. And uh, the, I guess the question is, why don't we just go ahead and eat these instead of feeding them to Atlantic salmon or whatever else? <clears throat> and uh, because you every step in a in a like a chain like that, you actually lose some efficiency. And so they're basically saying, well, why don't we just eat these fish? And I can tell you from personal experience that sardines, fresh sardines, are delicious. They are. And, and a surprising amount of small fish are delicious. And it turns out that small fish taste like fish. Um, exactly. <laughs> so you prepare them a little bit differently. You might eat the bones in some cases. Uh, but give it a shot. I mean, if you've eaten sardines, great. If you've eaten herring, um, I've had good herring and bad herring. I know that you don't like herring. Well, I, I'm trying to find... Uh, a form of herring that I find good. Uh, all the all the preserved kinds I've had so far have been a either yuck or meh. Yeah. Now you uh, don't you have. You're, now you're in the middle of the country. There's no big herring yeah. runs out there. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. What? Yeah. So we get our, our herring and shad come in at the same time up here, and they're both delicious fish, uh, especially fresh. Um, so totally good. Totally edible. Um, but yeah, eat eat low on the food chain. I've always been a fan of eating low on the food chain. Anyway, I, every time I kill a a large fish to consume, I feel a little bit bad about it because I feel like I'm taking out an important breeding population fish, a fish that might really benefit the world by staying in the ocean. Uh, but I don't usually feel bad about a tiny fish. I don't. I'm I'm a sizeist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I don't feel bad about eating bluegills and crappie, uh, stuff like that, that tends to be small and really prolific. Right, but if you got a trophy bluegill, like a 12-incher. <laughs> yeah, you're going to put that back. Yeah, should, and yeah. it's the same thing with catfish. I really enjoy catfishing, but I'd rather have the pan-sized little fish because those big, big fish, those are the those are the broodstock, and those are the ones you want to put back in and well, keep the population going. And not to mention, this is kind of a whole other story, but... Uh, large fish uh, have more mercury in them. <laughs> so yes. if you're going to eat fish, don't eat the big ones anyway. You're better yeah. off with the smaller fish. So anyway, that's that's really cool. And I got one more story that I put together for you. In New Hampshire every year, we have a giant fishing derby called the Great Rotary Ice Fishing Derby. It's a statewide derby. The entire state is open to this one fishing contest. And uh, it just happened over the last weekend. And... A bunch of people I know fished it, and a bunch of people I know got what's called fish on the board, which means they had a trophy fish uh, that they could win money for, about $15,000 in prizes given out, uh, and all the money goes to charity. And so I got to interview a guy named New Hampshire Trout Fisherman uh, about his winning uh, rainbow trout on that he got on the board. Um, this year, though, sadly, three people died fishing the derby. So I don't want to ignore that. They died in snowmobile accidents going over thin ice. Um, so even though the ice is in most places more than 12 inches thick, there are places where it's not safe. And it's always a tragedy and kind of makes it less fun uh, when people die. So we, we kind of, uh, we're sad about that. But uh, here's a little story I put together about the Great Rotary Fishing Derby. Hi there, ClayGrossFishNerds.com, hanging out with uh, New Hampshire trout fisherman, Keith. Keith, how are you? Not too bad. How you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for taking some time with me. The reason I called you, and we're, we're, uh, I'm calling you over Skype. The reason I called you is I was reading on the Ice Shanty, iceshanty.com, 
the uh, the the Facebook the uh, sorry the uh, group from uh, from New Hampshire, and I was reading about your adventure uh, ice fishing with your family, and I was I was uh, amazed at how hard you worked to catch trout uh, this weekend. Now this weekend was a Great Rotary Ice Fishing Derby, uh, which is a state New Hampshire statewide derby, but mostly takes place on Lake Winnipesaukee. And is that where you were fishing? Uh, no, it was another different lake. lake. Uh, it's a secret lake, right? Uh, the, the thing <laughs> nowadays with naming naming lakes is uh, you'd be amazed how many people go flock to a lake when they know a decent fish is caught. Uh, it's so uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of us will uh, kind of keep the, the lake quiet just uh, to, to kind of prevent that from happening. Which is smart. And now, so you and your family uh, were fishing the derby together, and the derby is huge. I mean, there are there's thousands of dollars in prizes. There's a lot of, at stake here. So you guys went and yep. stayed up in a hotel up near the lake you were going to fish. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, typically, uh, depending upon who I'm fishing with, I, I make a commute or I'll drive just to be closer to the lake so I can get an earlier start in the morning. And this is the first year um, I'm doing it with my son, who's five now. And uh, so we could get an early start because we stayed in a hotel up there. And that's totally fun. And and uh, five for having a five-year-old kid, that's you started like a, way early in the morning, right? You got like 4.30 or 4 in the morning? Yeah, yeah, I got up at four just because I knew um, from Friday uh, we had gotten up there previous, and I wanted to check conditions, and I knew there was a lot of snow on the ice. And uh, you know, as important as you know the Derby is to me, and and, and hoping to place in the Derby every year, uh, you know, number one priority is is uh, safety and comfort for my family now. You know, especially my wife and son. So yeah. I knew uh, with the gear I'd have to bring out with a portable shack and heater and and all the equipment, I'd have to make multiple trips out to. Uh, to where I was fishing, so I want to get an early start so that we could uh, get all that out there and keep them comfortable. Right, and I should tell everybody, you are the moderator for the New Hampshire page at iShanty.com, and you are known for the big trout you catch. I see you once a year. I see you at the Derby probably just every single year, putting board, fish on the yep. board. Um, I didn't go this year, yep. so I missed you, um, but I got your story. Yeah. So now, you get to the lake, and you got your family with you, and it's, what, a half mile, mile walk out to the spot? Yeah, again, one of the things I'll do is, just, um, you know, I have uh, certain locations on different lakes that I'll fish um, that, you know, potentially will hold big fish, you know, whether it's a, a drop off or a point or uh, an inlet or a stream or a anything that would uh, maybe draw some bigger fish in. And, uh, and I'll fish those locations. The other thing I like to do is typically during derby time is there's places where, you know, you'll typically fish prior to the derby. That'll be great. But come derby weekend, you know, a bunch of the crowds will show up and it'll kind of change the whole criteria of, uh, the fishing there just because there's people out that are little, doing a little bit more socializing than actually fishing. So in order to, to kind of get away from those crowds to a more of a quiet and uh, um, calmer spot where the, the fish may not be as spooked as easily, it says, you know, I'll get way out there in the ice and the particular place we were at uh, was about a half mile from the access point. So, so again, uh, that was one of the, the, the toughest challenges of the weekend was just getting all that, uh, gear and stuff out to that spot with my, my family, you know, prior to fishing that morning. So uh, it took quite a, a while yeah, to I mean, I get it all out. I read your post and you, see, you made a trip out with your gear and then a trip back out with your family the second, you know, so it was two walks out. So yeah. you do, you were doing twice yeah, the size of all of them. Yeah, it was actually three. Um, <laughs> the, the morning it was there. The, the first trip was the portable shack and the heater. The uh -huh. second trip was the gear was, you know, the jet sled with the auger and, and the, the uh, bait cooler and all the uh the other fishing equipment and then the third trip was out with my wife and son you know i kind of escorted both of them out my son's five and with the snow being uh some spot 16 inch inch uh drifts you know sometimes he 
he couldn't make it way through so i'd actually carry him part of the way you know once we all got out there i drilled all the holes and then uh proceeded to get set up you know which took a little while and you know ideally we were hoping to get set up for sunrise but we had all the lines in uh, probably around uh, a little after seven that's, so. that, you know, that's pretty good for three trips out there, and it's a lot of snow. People who haven't walked on deep snow on a lake don't know how much work that is and how tiresome it is. This is my yeah, first year yeah, fishing uh, with a snow machine, so I'm happy to not walk through yeah, the snow. Yeah, it def- definitely makes a difference. I actually have a snow machine at home, and the way it's been this season is we've uh, we've gotten minimal snow. It's actually been ideal walking conditions, mm-hmm. typically, where it would have either glare ice where you could pull a, you know, a, a sled or, or – uh, some gear behind you weighing a couple hundred pounds with with you know pull of one finger you know and glare ice either that if you had a couple inches of snow it was very easy walking conditions so i had kind of held off on uh registering the snowmobile and then you know um prior to it i said well why register the sled just for for one weekend you know and then we get dumped on so things kind of change <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, live and learn i guess yeah things are very different now so you got out that first day did you get fish that first day yeah, yeah, I want to say probably we we started fishing around seven, and between seven and maybe uh, noontime, we we think we got four rainbows in the you know the three to three and a half pound range, or you know, eighteen to twenty inch rainbows, and uh, and the pickerel, which you know kind of translates to maybe a fish every half hour, forty five minutes. But you know, again, prior to fishing the derby, I I fished these spots before, and I know that it can be hit or miss and, and on certain days if you you know if you can luck out the fish are in there so we were in a good spot it sounds like i want to stay around yeah, yeah uh right around twelve thirty, uh i had a i had a good fish um that i that i knew was a contender i'd been listening uh to the radio and also um following the facebook page for the rotary derby and i knew that the leader was a uh a 22 inch i believe it was 4.33 pound rainbow which is the category i was trying to compete in uh, was boarded and I pulled up a fish that I could tell again from catching multiple fish and, and, uh, you know, my previous experience, I knew it was a good fish or possible contender. I measured it to be, uh, at around 23 and a quarter inches. So I knew it had the length on it, the potential and, and, you know, fairly good at guessing weights. I knew it was over a four pound fish. So I grabbed my fish scale and, uh, my scale teetered between four pounds, four ounces and four pounds, six ounces. Now, again, granted, it's not a certified scale, but it gives me a pretty good idea if, if i've got a fishing contention it, it settled in right around four pounds Perfect. five ounces so I, I i knew it would be awful close but i knew i had a contender so then it was time to make a decision on you know what to do whether to make the mad rush to the border or to uh to keep fishing and at that point i knew that it'd be tough to top that and it, and it was in very close contention with the leader so uh then it became the decision to pick up all the gear and then make the long trick all the way back with all the gear once again. So. It's a tremendous amount of work. And people who don't know, because a lot of our listeners are around the country, uh, the trip to the, the board, even if you're nearby, is a long trip because you have to go there, you got to find parking, and then you got to stand in line at this shed on the bank of the uh, Lake Pernambusaki and wait to get your fish weighed in. And you have to have it all mm-hmm. done by a certain time of day. So it really is a race to get your gear in and get lined up. But you got there, you waited in, and you made the board? Yeah, yeah, I wound up, uh, official weight, probably, I want to say it wound up taking me about three hours between hauling all that gear back off the ice, loading it back into the truck, getting my wife and son back in the vehicle, and then uh, driving to the board, and like you said, parking and whatnot. About three hours later, I think the official weight was uh, 418 and 23 inches, and uh, I think that put me in second for the day um, for Saturday. And, and, and uh, I also had another... For that? 
Yep. Yeah. That what they do now is all cash prizes. Cause I think in the past they've done things like uh, vehicles and boats and uh, ATVs and whatnot, but I think they've decided to do away with that now because a lot of people that would win those bigger prizes had a uh, tough time paying the taxes on them. So now they, I believe what they do is, is all cash prizes now for this particular derby. Congratulations. So you got one on the board on Saturday. Yeah, I actually had uh, two up until the last minute. Really? I was in uh, second and six. Yeah, I was in second and fifth. And then uh, usually, just for people that, again, don't fish the derby, usually a lot of the fish get bumped off to right towards the end because a lot of people will wait, you know, to the last hour. They want to get as maximum fishing time as, as they can, you know, so they'll wait. And sometimes that, that's beneficial to people, and sometimes it's not because after a fish dies, they, they will lose weight. I mean, not drastic, but sometimes, you know, in competition, uh, it, it really comes down to, you know, ounces or fractions of an ounce between you know first place and second place and you know on other places on the board where people get bumped oh, I've so seen uh, i was actually in, yeah i was actually in uh sorry go ahead sir you know, i've seen people running to the board with fish that are losing eggs as they're running to the yep. board you know and yeah that's that's happened to me in previous years also i uh you know i also kind of put it out there at what people had for ideas with the eggs and I got good suggestions because I've had a couple of fish in the past that also were right up there. Once was in first, I went down the second one year, another year I was in, uh, I think second and I wound up in third or fourth again because of female fish with eggs. And one of the suggestions was, uh, some guy had a, 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 a golf tee was an idea to put in the, the rear end of the fish to block it. And my, my dad had actually come up with a good idea for this year. I actually didn't need it because they, they yeah, I believe the fish I had were, uh, were males and, and then I had a, I did have a female but without eggs and uh, but my my dad's idea was just to take uh, gauze you know like you would get if you were to get a wound just because it is flexible and you could wrap it and it would you know kind of adhere to the fish a little bit better and uh, that's you know a, a future uh, thought if, if you've got the eggs but again like you said uh, weight weight is the factor in the derby and uh, that's a critical thing so some people will try to get that maximum fishing time and wait till the end and, and rush to the board and a lot of things change in that last uh, I want to say usually the last hour, half hour of the board. So I want to say it maybe quarter of uh, five on Saturday when the board closes at five. I was in second and fifth, and I think I, I get bumped off in the sixth, which uh, it's the top five prizes. So I get bumped off on the, the uh, fifth place in the sixth on Saturday, but still held on with the second place, which was nice. That's really cool. And then so ending strong. And you're planning to go out next day. So you go back to your hotel and then you yep. spend all night reorganizing all your gear. Is that right? Yeah, because we had, uh, again, an additional bunch of snow on uh, Saturday all day long. And, yeah. and so you're, you're, are you trapping or, or using uh, tip-ups or jigging? Uh, miscellaneous uh, strategies. I will we'll use tip-ups, but I use um, other things called jaw jackers now. It's a different mm -hmm. fishing device where I can actually fight the... Uh, fish in a rod and reel which is what i prefer to do versus hand line uh there are benefits benefits to that versus uh tip-ups but you know it, it's it's again it's, it's all pertaining to the conditions out there on the ice you know again it, it always comes down to prefer, personal preference everybody's got their own way of doing it you know well I, i've seen your fish and i think you're doing it the right way because uh, <laughs> you're good good results and then sunday so you're out again same trip sunday morning super early and your wife and kid are very tolerant of all this, huh? Yeah, yeah, my, they were they were great. You know, I, my wife uh, was there to support me. It's one of those things she knows. Fishing is my passion, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm very um, uh, conscientious of all her and my son's needs. You know, the rest of the year round, and you know, when it comes to things that are important to me, like this particular weekend, 
you know, it's kind of my Super Bowl, so to speak, mm-hmm. and she knows how important it is. So she uh, she does her best to support me any way she can. And with Troopers and my son, uh, actually had a little fun sledding on hill nearby while we were out fishing, and uh, we fished till maybe I want to say 11:30 or so on uh, Sunday, and and uh, we got two more rainbows. It was a, it was a slower day fishing wise, but we did get two more nice rainbows that uh, that also were. Uh, possible contenders for Sunday so then once we uh finished up fishing I want to say around 11 30 we headed over the board again with a couple more fish that's totally fun and you placed with those fish yeah actually uh the, one of the fish again was about another 23 inch fish that uh was just under four pounds and that one placed first nice. and then there was another fish that was uh, right around I want to say three and a quarter or so maybe a little heavier uh that placed third and then again last minute of the derby i want to say two minutes prior there was another gentleman actually have uh met before around volunteering and fishing game um he's one of the uh, workers that works over the hatchery he had come in with a fish that uh but mine from third place in the fourth so i finished on sunday with a first place fish and a fourth place fish hey that's a good weekend yeah i've, I've, I've fished the derby uh several years and uh, I've, I've placed several years but Never multiple fish, so uh, this was this was nice to, to place multiple times this year. That's really good. Congratulations. Have you ever won the overall derby? No, they've no. changed that a uh, few different ways over the years. I've, I've come very close. Again, we know the eggs were a factor one year, and it, it all comes down to weight. But, but in the, again, it's it's all in, I think, the, some of the decisions you make. I mean, if you have a fish big enough that there's, there's no question at all on the weight, then, you know, usually you're pretty set. But there, there's uh, sometimes, like I said, what it just comes down to ounces, and that's happened to me a couple of times where I've, I've just missed that top spot by, by you know, fractions of an ounce, you know, to a couple ounces, you know. That's but uh, you know that that's the competition, and there's a lot of fish weighed in, and a lot of good anglers, and uh, you know, that, that's part of the fun of it all, you know. But, yeah, it's a totally great. It's always, weekend. Always, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's always the goal for the next year to try to do a little bit better, and this year so far has been the best that I've had, and uh, you know, you just keep keep trying to do better the following year. Well, congratulations, and if, you can, if you're not following um, theiceshanty.com, get there now, and Keith is NH Trout Fisherman. He's the moderator of the New Hampshire board at theiceshanty.com, and if you're not already a member of that group, you should become one because it's a great website, a great resource for, uh, for ice fishermen, and, of course, the fish nerds are sponsoring it, so, we, of course, we're going to push you there anyway. So, hey, Keith, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> and kind of a fun fact. Um, so, so that derby, uh, hundreds of fish every year are killed at that derby. They're nailed to this board, and at the end, they're all piled up, and and they're brought to the Squam Lake Natural Science Center, and those birds go into a big freezer there, and they feed the raptors for the rest of the year. So, well, it's good to know that they're not just getting nailed to a board for no good reason. Yeah, so that 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 thing of the the nailing the fish to a board, I don't come from a tradition of ice fishing, and so I've always found that very odd. I also I come from a tradition of ice fishing, and I don't like it. Yeah, um, on a personal level, I I I I wish it was a big statewide catch and release derby, <laughs> like yeah. But but visually, it wouldn't have the tourist draw that it has. No, no. So that's just too bad. That's the way it goes. So we have one more story i want to tell before we wrap this uh wrap this show up we're going a little longer than i going around the internet these days uh i don't know where the story came from originally but a person uh actually i wrote it up didn't i 
Let me go to my notes. All right. Uh, you need to have seen it. You need to have seen it by now. You probably have. However, simply uh, in case you haven't, a Facebook stand, a Facebook guy from Cincinnati resident Scout Burns itemized the explanation of why he hates the mola mola or the ocean sunfish. It's gone viral. Actually, I think this is a, actually I think this is a, a girl. A girl scout. Yeah. Girl. So we may need to restart this. Uh, Let me check. Gonna... I can I can check on Facebook here real quick because I've got it pulled up. Let me see here. Scout Burns, I believe, is female. Let's look. Yes, I believe Scout Burns is. I found her Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So. That's funny. It's... All right, let's start over again. Okay. Notes. All right, three, two. All right. Hey, hey, Jeff, do you know what a mola mola is? Yes, uh, a baby whale, according it's a whale. to. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's a baby whale, Jay. Yeah. You got to call the Coast Guard call or the, the aquarium or something. What the hell is that thing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Mola mola is ocean sunfish. And uh, I don't know what generated this, but a woman named Scout Burns uh, put up this great. Facebook post on why she hates the Mola Mola, and I can't think of anything better to do with this but just read it verbatim, word for word, um, because it's so damn good. And I, we're not even going to do any commentary. We're just going to take turns reading paragraphs of this if that works for you. Yeah. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna substitute uh, a few words here with a little yeah. P PC thing. So uh, so this this is yesterday actually. It's fresh news here. So someone in a group asked me to tell them why I hate the ocean sunfish so much. And apparently it was too mean and was deleted. To perpetuate the truth and stand up for ethical journalism, I'm posting it here. Rated NC-17 for language. Yeah, disclaimer. I care about marine life more than I care about anything else. For real. Except this big dumb idiot. <laughs> and it's not like an ironic thing. I mean, it is hilarious to me, and they're the biggest joke played on Earth. But I seriously freaking hate them. The Mola Mola fish, or ocean sunfish, they're the world's largest bony fish, weighing up to 5,000 pounds. And since they have very little girth, they just make them these absolutely giant effing dinner plates that God must have accidentally dropped while washing dishes one day and shrugged his shoulders at because no one could have imagined this would happen. And with no purpose, every pound of that is wasted pound and every foot of it, 10 feet by 14, is wasted space. They are so completely useless that scientists even debate about how they move. They have little control other than some minor wiggling. Some say they must just push water out of their mouths for direction. Question mark, question mark, question mark. They could use their back fin, except guess what? It doesn't effing grow. It just continually folds in on itself so the freaking cells are being made. This piece of floating garbage just doesn't put them where they need to effing go. Everything they do eat has almost zero nutritional value, and because it's so stupidly effing big, it has to eat a ton of the almost no nutritional value stuff to stay alive. Dumb. See that ridiculous open mouth? This is actually why this is my favorite picture of one, and I have had it saved to my phone for three years. Oh, no. What could have happened? 
How could this be? Do not let that expression fool you. They just don't have the goddamn ability to close their mouth because their teeth are fused together. And you know what? It is good it floats around with such clueless expression on its face because it is, in fact, clueless as, as all F. They do sometimes get eaten, though, but hardly. No animal truly uses them as a food source, but instead, which has led us to said photo, we usually just maim the F out of them for kicks. Seals have been seen playing with their fins like frisbees. Probably the most useful thing ever to come from them. Wow, you raised some good points here. This fish is truly is proof that God has abandoned us. Yes, thank you. But if they're so bad at literally everything, why haven't they gone extinct? Great question. Because <laughs> And this is all caps. Because this thing is so worthless it doesn't realize it should not exist. It is so unaware of literally effing everything that it doesn't realize that it's doing maybe the worst effing job of being a fish or debatably the worst job of being a cluster of cells than any other cluster of cells. So what does it do? It lays the most eggs out of everything. Besides some bugs, there are some ants and stuff that'll lay more. It will lay 300 million eggs at one time. 300 million. It survives because it would be statistically improbable, dare I say impossible, that there wouldn't be at least one of those 300 million that is each time they lay eggs left surviving at the end of the day. So they don't have swim bladders, you know. The one thing that every fish has to make sure it doesn't just sink to the bottom of the ocean when they stop moving and can stay right side up. This creature that can barely move to begin with can never stop its continuous tour of idiocy across the ocean or it'll F and sink. Except, except when they get stuck on top of the water, which happens frequently because without the whole swim bladder thing, the ocean pushes over the thinnest but largest, most toppable fish on the planet. Shit out of luck. There is no creature on this earth that needs a swim bladder more than this spit in the face of nature, and yet some scientists have speculated that when they do that, they're absorbing energy from the sun because no one effing knows how they managed to get any real energy to begin with. So they need the sun, I guess. But good news, when they end up stuck like that, it gives birds a chance to land on them on their goddamn island of a body, eat the bugs and parasites out of their skin because it's basically slowly migrating cesspool of pros and cons. <laughs> if they are so huge, they must at least be decent predators. No. No. <laughs> the most dangerous thing about them is, as you may have guessed, their stupidity. They have caused the death of one person before because it jumped onto a boat on a human. And in 2005, it decided to relive its mighty glory days and do it again, this time landing on a four-year-old boy. Luckily, Byron sustained no injuries. Way to go, fish. Great job. And this concludes why I hate the F out of this complete failure of evolution, the ocean sunfish. If I ever see one, I will throw rocks at it. Perfect. That's so. That's it. Uh, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's it is a, just an amazing rant. I uh, really love that stuff. And if you find anything good like this, this is internet gold. Share it with the fish nerds so we can share it on our show. Up. So that's it. You've listened to a couple of fish nerds when you could have been fishing. We'd like to thank our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on fishing quests, and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. 
If you'd like to support the Fish Nerds, you can go to patreon.com, search for Fish Nerds, and help us crowdfund this podcast. Special thanks to Jeff Danielson. Jeff, thank you for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Also, thank you to Mystery Tackle Box. You can go to mysterytacklebox.com and type in the coupon code FISHNERDS to save $5 off your first month of your subscription. And until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerd. Spawn early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. Boom shakalaka. Boat stands for bring out another thousand. Yeah, I know it. So, all <laughs> yeah. right, Jeff, I got to go. Uh, thank yeah, you for awesome. helping tonight. Appreciate it. This, I mean, it really, yeah. it means a lot to me uh, that that you guys um, that, that you guys support the show the way you do, and then being oh, part yeah. of it is such a big thing. It's so important. Well, you know, it, it gives the show a new voice, and it, it kind of brings life back to the show. And I'm and on my own, I can't do it. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I. I'm a hundred percent invested in this continuing cause I love it. So hey, fabulous. Well, this will be out on Monday if I get it mixed. <laughs> so, All right, cool. All right. Thanks. I'll let people know. All right. Bye. See you, Clay. Bye.